You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies in Recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Annie, we're back for Coming Up for Air. How are you doing? Hello, good morning um, or afternoon, wherever you're listening from. I'm doing well, and this week's conversation is based on what we call heads up information, and that's going to be information that either we were given that gave us kind of a pre warning about what we were dealing with or might deal with, or heads ups that we wishes we wish we would have had. Sounds awesome. Um, okay, so. My first heads up was to have a plan. Is this when you were first introduced to substance use disorder, which we will call SUD from here on out? Um, Or is this once you, well, we were introduced very differently. And if anybody's not familiar with our stories, they can go back to the intro. I had a gradual progression of discovering my son had developed a dependency to painkillers after a medical procedure. Lori's son had overdosed and had been using for a while, and that was how she was introduced. So we both come from very different journeys to the exact same family issue of substance, the disease of addiction. Yeah, and I, the reason why I say have a plan, I think you can have a plan no matter where you are in your journey. Right. Yeah. right. So, so you had a gradual progression and had kind of some forewarning. Yes, and with my mom and all of that. Right. And you could um, create a plan early on. Uh, I, on the other hand, was kind of shocked into it. And I did not have a plan. I didn't even understand. I was literally, it felt like I was treading water, trying very hard to keep my nose up above the water and just gasping for air. And I really wish, I really, really wish that someone had said, hey, Laurie, you can have you can get a plan and help outline, well, what does that mean? What does have a plan mean when we're talking about being in the middle of crisis with SUD? And so what I mean by that is have some numbers of shelters ready, have some numbers for treatment facilities, look up the different kind of treatment facilities and see what's available. Uh, Some are dual diagnosis, some are strictly uh, SUD, some are based only on the 12 steps and big book from Alcoholics Anonymous, Uh, some are evidence-based treatments, some um, will uh, work with all sorts of different disorders as well as substance use. Um, what else? Have Narcan ready. Yeah, that was something. And, you know, we are about five years out now. Narcan wasn't even in conversation or on the news like it is now. So that was something that I would have never known in, in our process. That is something I think every home should have. I had talked to a woman 
um, a couple of months ago who had said she was given Narcan and she was afraid of it and didn't want to acknowledge that it was a possibility, but knew her son had this issue. And she said one night she just happened to take a look at it and go through the instructions. And the next day she came home from work and found him overdosing. And she said, had I not picked that up and actually considered the possibility and prepared and had a plan, I, I may, he may have died in my midst. Right. And the, the other thing is, is, uh, I, I agree with you 100%. Like when I, when I first was introduced to this, I didn't even know what Narcan was. I had never heard of it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know I could have it. And I think in my state, I couldn't have it at the time. But now things have changed drastically. And now you can, you, in many states, not all, I know that you can go and get um, a, there's like a standing prescription on a particular pharmacies, I think at like CVS and Walgreens, and there's all different forms of, of Narcan that you can get. You can get um, injectable Narcan. There's nasal naloxone where you just spray it up each nostril. And there's even different forms of that. Yeah. Um, there yeah. are new injectables that actually talk to you, okay. right? They're high, yeah, they're high tech and they just, all you do, you don't have to pull anything apart or put anything together, you literally just um, press it hard into like a fatty area of their body and it talks to you. It counts out how long you're supposed to hold it and it tells you what to do. A so, lot of this is you can pull into a fire station and they'll tell you all of that too, I learned. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that they provide it. You can normally find those things at pharmacies, but you can ask at a pharmacy or a fire station and they are happy to tell you how to prepare and plan for that. I also know that in some states, you can go to meetings, you can go to different facility treatments and you can get it for free. Mm -hmm. um, so plan. Right. Have a plan. Have it available. Have it in your pocketbook. You know, just have it. <laughs> um, I also think it's really important to involve um, as many people who are surrounding the loved one involved in your plan. They, they have, everybody should be staying in communication with one another and connected with one another. That, that's how I, as much as you possibly can, because I know as much as you want, because different. some people are not trustworthy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, but the, the people who, yes. And the people that are tried and true, trustworthy, concerned and on board with, you know, not everybody's motive is for safety, health, and peace. Some people, they're motivated for using as well or getting what they can out of it. So, and unfortunately, I know that I'm not the only one that's dealt with that. So, who is trustworthy in your life? Everyone should absolutely know the heads ups about everything and every part of the plan and what to do in case of this or that, or what to look for and what to see and notice. If there's insurance involved, make sure your insurance is updated or their insurance is updated. Uh, what else? Make sure you, you know, you know, it's a really good thing that people, people forget is um, I always had a list of meetings in my area, you know, AA meetings, Al-Anon meetings, Naranon meetings, NA meetings, codependency, um, any kind of self-help meetings. Also, uh, now the really good thing that I think a lot of people are not aware of there are a lot of meetings online, like Smart Recovery. Yeah. Right? 
and then the other thing is, I think, is to get educated. Get educated, educated, educated. Well, yeah, because you really don't know what you're dealing with at first. I've always said that when I started, when I, I started seeing therapists, but I also became, by the grace of God, friends with a couple of them that were very skilled at, about family dynamics and substances and all of that. And what I normally had thought was a bad day or a conflict that was usual and normal, they would explain to me the dynamics of them and they were pretty textbook. So educating me, things that I had struggled with, you know, within my family or with my mother for decades, the right. same struggle for decades, a little bit of knowledge went so far, it began untangling me from it and put an end to those. Education will launch you out of the darkness. Right. I agree. Um, what else? Well, I have little separate categories that I know. I tend to come at things more from the madness perspective and not so much the textbook. So I can, ex I can explain my experience with that because if there's anything um, I understand, if dysfunction was a competitive sport, <laughs> I would have a gold medal in every realm of it. So just having the experience of it, um, I broke it down into four categories of what to have a heads up about. Um, when someone's in active use, when someone's in treatment, about when they relapse after treatment, and that it's a process. Um, and I don't know if you wanna interject in here, but when someone is in active use, there are certain things that are part of that process, or part of the disease, that the disease will, their brain has become hijacked, or I looked at it like my son was kidnapped. Um, and all, you know, it's, it's really not the same person you're dealing with. It was almost like an evil twin that looked like him, but was showing up and my son was off in a faraway land and I couldn't communicate in the same ways. I couldn't understand. So when someone is in active use, certain things occur like the tug of war conversation. And I think we discussed that with um, Rob Coble on his episode. You can't understand why they won't just stop or why you would stop or why you would not do it and they're not, they can't stop. You don't understand that. Um, from the same perspective, if you flip the coin, they can't understand your perspective. So you have this, these tug of war conversations and no one can hear each other. I agree with you. Uh, you can expect that. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, it's just going to happen. Right. So you have to arm yourself against that or, or not against it, but you have to arm yourself in a way that it's gonna that the um, the effects of it are gonna be minimized on your end of it. Yeah, you have, you don't right. Get, you don't get lured into the same kind of discussions. Um, don't take the hooks. Those hooks become part of the cycle, and you get lured into defending yourself or explaining your answers or getting talked into things or talked out of things. You just cannot take those same hooks. And, and also, there's a lot of things like, um, I hear this all the time. I hear about how, uh, one of the biggest topics, and I'd really like to talk about this in the future, um, I hear, oh, he lied to me, or she lied to me, she just keeps lying, or uh, she keeps blaming me, or um, uh, they're stealing. I, my thing is now, and, and of course, this is not how I felt when I first was introduced to this and first into crisis. And it took me a long time in my journey to kind of come to terms with this and kind of understand he's not doing that to me. He's That's, not. That was my exact next point is it's not personal. 
it's not personal and it is a disease that hijacks his uh, his logical thinking. So if I could, if I could, as soon as I grasp that, as soon as I got to that point where, oh my gosh, I'm dealing with the disease. I'm not dealing with my son. Once I got that concept, it helped me to say, okay, he is going to lie to me, period. He just is. And if I think he's lying, then he probably is. And I'm going to treat it. I'm going to, I'm going to set up my boundaries. I'm going to set up uh, my response to him with an understanding that I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to challenge him on it, but I am going to understand in my own mind that he probably is lying to me. And that's what I'm going to base that my, my decisions and creating my boundaries and trying to create a safe place for myself. I just, I'm just not going to believe him. And then if I'm wrong, I can always go back and I can apologize later on. Right. And you know, the, I remember somebody saying once that she couldn't get over that her son had lied to her because I would have never lied to my parents. She said that over and over and she looked so bitter and she would grow more hateful every time I would talk to her about it and just kept getting hung up on that point because you're personalizing it. You have to take the emotion out of it. Taking the emotion out of it and applying logic that it's a brain disease that drives dysfunctional behavior, it's not a personal, moral, ethical choice against you, makes it a whole lot easier to know how to manage it. It's not about saying, well, they're just going to lie and that's okay and I'm gonna put up with it. That's absolutely not what it's about. It's knowing that it's part of the disease. It drives, their their drive is so powerful. It drives that behavior. That behavior makes sense and gets the results they want. So all you can do, all you, it's not all you can do. What you, The healthy thing to do is to put up your boundaries and consequences and don't engage it. Right, exactly. Make it personal. I mean, it is personal. It feels personal. I'm not going to say you're not going to feel it. I got, there were certain moments and things that were such an assault to my relationship with family that it would drive me to my knees and break my heart. But then I'd get back up and get over it and move forward and heal from it and realize I'm dealing with a nasty predatory disease. Right. That's exactly how I felt. I, you know, at, at first I did take it personally. And then once I, once I realized, oh, oh, and that all comes out of the education piece that I was talking about. It was that education, understanding SUD as a disease is what helped me in the, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a crisis that, oh, I'm, I'm really not dealing with my son that I know loves me, that I know under different circumstances wouldn't try and steal, wouldn't try and manipulate, wouldn't try and lie to me. Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he would. But in this moment, I know it's the disease. I'm not going to take it personally. And I'm going to make my decisions, create my boundaries to protect myself, right? To keep my, to keep myself safe. And as I've said in the past, I turned it into a game. For me, it was a game. It was a challenge that uh, I was not going to get drawn into it. Yeah, I, I was don't not, know that at first, and sometimes in the heat of the moment, you're ambushed so hard and so fast, oh yeah. or you're tired or caught off guard, or you're busy. But um, yeah, if you definitely have a plan in place and being aware and educated, you can know what steps to take every time you see it coming. And and it takes practice, right? It takes practice. Yeah. Little little baby steps, like setting. You know, for example, this is another thing that um that I feel is actually a part of making a plan is 
uh, targeting small little boundaries that I'm going to set up for myself, things that I can follow through on, you know, a boundary that I am going to keep, but something small, and I'm going to practice it, practice it, practice it. I'll even practice it, let's say, on, uh, on the bank teller or, you know, the grocery store clerk or, you know, just something small that I can do. And I'll do it for, let's say, a month. And that might be the only boundary that I set up or the only change that I make in my life in that, at that time. But at least it's one thing that I'm doing different. Yeah. So, right. So in some ways I am changing the situation. Yes. Right? Yeah. And change, I mean, change has to start somewhere and it can start an avalanche of growth and progress. Um, another heads up I have for when someone is in active use, whether you're new to their active use or it's been ongoing, is that chasing away friends and relationships does not work. You actually become glue for those friendships and relationships. I thought if I scared people away or I actually hurt the people by things I would do or say that were involved with my son and shouldn't have been, that they would go away. People don't go away just because you scare them away or try to hurt them or just because you're drama. People, and I've had people try to hurt me to make me go away or terrify me, you know, totally different circumstances, but that never works. I also found in, in, you know, my personal experience, I also found that, yeah, that doesn't work. And in fact, it can actually do the opposite. It does I, do the opposite. It makes them bond. It makes them right. have something to talk about and it gives them a common enemy. So you're making them stronger. Right. And th to me, that's where a lot of this behavior that I was talking about previously, like lying that it comes out because then I found anytime I tried to do that, then my son would lie to me because yeah. he would go and meet them somewhere else or, and he would tell me that he wasn't hanging out with them. You know, he would just lie. So it was it, because he, because one, he didn't want to disappoint me Two, He knew I would get upset and he didn't want to listen to me get upset. And then three, you know, he was going to go and do what he wanted to do regardless of what I had to say. Yeah. So, so, you know, what was the point of me? And I did, I did some really crazy things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think yeah. I've told you this, I, right on his phone, I tried calling people. Uh, I looked up the phone bill, found the numbers that he was calling on his cell phone. I dialed them to try and figure out who each person was, yeah. to, right? To try and figure out the drug dealer so that I could tell the drug dealer to stay out of his life, which is ridiculous. No person that's involved in that kind of darkness or assisting that is gonna be frightened away by someone's mom. Right. I tried to get strategic about it. I tried to say I was from coming, I worked with some media at the time. So I would try to go to these houses and I would walk up in my work clothes and say, I'm going to, um, I have a tent in my car. I'm going to put it in your front yard. If my son is anywhere near here again, and I'm going to sleep in it until channel six shows up. And then that was the only thing that kind of got their attention because it was exposure. It wasn't threatening the police because they don't care. And I couldn't threaten physical harm, but I would threaten that I was going to bring the media there. And it was the stupidest thing ever. And it worked a couple times, but it made our situation worse. And like my son had said in his episode, it drove his behavior into, he had to be more, more strategic and more intellectual about what he did. And it drove him around worse people. Right. It and it doesn't work. Right. I remember him saying, 
here he had, you know, he had this person that he could trust to give him, yeah, the, you know, what he wanted. And because you were doing that, now he had to go and seek out someone else. Yeah. And it could have been actually more dangerous. I remember him saying that. It in was dangerous video. for all of us. I mean, I'm surprised something didn't happen to me. I guess I thought telling them the exposure was on them kind of reduced the threat for both of us because they were being watched for some. I mean, you're that crazy. You are that crazy in the midst of it that you would walk up on a porch where you see, like I would see a rifle and the front yard was fenced in with pit bulls and it was a scary area. And I, I had no fear. It was like a mom that lifts a car off their child. I would walk up and think I'm saving him. This is going to save his life. Yeah. So sick. And then I drove, I walked back to my car a couple times and vomited after I did it. I was so worked up and afraid well, and then drove to work and worked all day with that on me, with that well, fear on me. Annie, I, one time my son had used and I was just so upset, just so beyond myself. I made him get in the car and I made him drive me to where he, he bought his drugs. Right. Like first off, how am I, how am I sure that he really brought me to where he buys his drugs? And second off, I made him point out the person that he bought his drugs from. Like, how do I know it really was the guy that sold him drugs? You know, it, it was I mean, just, none of it makes sense. what was I doing? Right. Those dynamics, especially at, initially, I think everyone does them. You feel responsible to do them and then you feel crazy yeah. to do them. You feel panicked. I have always said, I felt like we were in a death race. So, so what do you do? I, you know, personally, some things that you have to do, you have to start taking care of yourself. One of the, one of the biggest and first things, one of the, the biggest um, game changer is to take care of yourself. I really, really honestly and truthfully believe that. And how to do that is one, seek professional help. I agree because your mind is not going to come out. You can't get your mind on you unless you're talking to somebody else and you're not chasing down the problem. Right. Also, I think you have to surround yourself with friends and family that um, are supportive and loving and understanding. Yeah, I was gonna say that as well. Um, one of the points I have is uh, that's a heads up for me was that everyone seems like they're speaking a foreign language when you're going through that and you yeah. are too. And you know, the only people that could understand me at the time were people who were either trained in the situation or had been through it. And everyone else seemed to just kind of clog my conversation with um, pain or they would weigh me down because they didn't get it or they yeah. wanted to hear about it and then they'd go talk about it and wound me because they weren't dealing with it. And it was, it was such a, I mean, it's a humongous situation for anyone to, be, to deal with. And if you don't have anything like that in your life, it's a high drama. So I had to make my world small and protect myself. You have to protect yourself, especially socially. There was just no, I had to have my own back and look out for myself socially. You can be very wounded when you're going through that in social settings. Uh, I totally agree. And I, I think that kind of comes to my next point, which was I was going to say the next thing to do is to go looking for people that are in the same situation and surround yourself with them. I think you may find you may find that you may end up with some friendships that you never would have had if this wasn't happening to you. Before we go on, let's thank Allies in Recovery for sponsoring Coming Up for Air. Members who join Allies in Recovery can communicate directly with us. Many ask us questions we end up addressing right on the podcast. 
Members can also request topics they would like for us to cover. Join today at alliesinrecovery.net. Now, back to the show. The other thing I think is really important is to do things you like to do. Even if you're absolutely miserable at the time when you're doing it, do it anyway. Get in there and I, you I mean, know, even I would. Five minutes. Even five yeah, minutes. Yeah. I made sure when I, when I was going through, you know, some really tough times, I made sure to try and socialize with people that I really cared about. And I tried to appreciate those moments. And I tried to really, you know, for me, I tried really hard to, to get my mind off of it. And what that did was it really helped me to appreciate things uh, so much more than I ever had. And I started to uh, appreciate things like, like, I started to realize that maybe I was neglecting other parts of my life. Maybe I was so focused on this crisis and what was going on with that, that I was forgetting about all these other parts of my life. Like, like for example, the two beautiful daughters that I have, you know, like the incredible husband that I have. Um, the, like your job, like your health, like yeah. your looks. I mean, it's, even if you have to force yourself for 10 minutes, and I know what it's like to not have a minute in the day where you can pull your mind off of it. Yep. You have to force yourself to open, have a window of time, and that window will start to expand. Right. Um, I think a, a heads up is that um, a couple of conversations I didn't expect to see coming up talking about that textbook behavior is that sometimes they will have grandiose conversation with you or grandiose threats where I'm, I need the car for this or someone's going to come kill the whole family. I don't know if that's happened to you, but, but those conversations I've heard in meetings before, and that's just kind of manipulation. Um, if I don't yeah. have this money or I had to take this money because the mafia is after us or drug dealers are after us and they're going to come into the house and, they get very grandiose with things or they have huge grandiose plans. And those were things that um, I haven't dealt with those in a long time, but I hear them in meetings every week. And it's a good heads up to know that sometimes that's just part of the behavior driven by the disease. I, I've not had that. That's, I find that interesting. I, yeah, I could see how, how they might do that. And then I, another thing that like, I don't know if you've dealt with this or not, but sincerity was a, was a big bruise for me because I would believe sincerity. I really am done with this. I really am getting on track. I'm really doing everything it takes or it, and I would, I would either fall for it and then we'd start all over again. I'd be hurt by it. And then, you know, I'd have these expectations that things were going to be fine. And I had a therapist say to me, they mean it in the moment. And it's a two part thing. Yes. Not only do they mean it in the moment, you want to believe that sincerity so bad. And she would say, at this point, everything's manipulation. And that would, I would get so frustrated with her because I wanted, it wasn't that I felt she was insulting us. I mean, I guess that was the outer layer of it when the truth was, I wanted to believe the sincerity because I yes. wanted it to end so bad. Yes. That sincerity tricked me over and over and over. Well, and I, I, I do believe them when they tell us that, right? When they, at least when my son, I, I believed my son when he would say to me, I don't want to do this anymore. And I believe that he was really sincere, but kind of like that counselor, I also believe it was in the moment. And I, I think their brains are, and this is just my thoughts on, on how that works. I think their brains are so hijacked that, uh, that, that sincerity and that, that, 
the drive to use or the craving to use overtakes them and yeah. they and they can't think logically that's, that's right. and that's just my take on it my and to, to piggyback on their brain being hijacked my last heads up is that you will feel crazy that is a heads up oh yeah you, your brain becomes hijacked yeah. too i was as addicted to knowing my son was okay or making my mom hear me in the midst of all of that and that's all in my book i was as addicted that it i could hear nothing else but trying to make that happen trying to save him yes. and stop her interference and i i mean it makes you climb the walls crazy i had somebody text me the other day and she said you know we're two years past going through all of this with my daughter but i'll be honest i'm just not the same you know and, there's, oh, and you're not you're just not and she's not really getting up from it quickly and you know sometimes you just don't it makes and, and you the, climb the walls crazy. You have to do the work to recover because it is, yes. it is so frightening, so painful, so terrifying, so nasty. It makes you crazy. Yeah. And you do. You, it's, it's a, it's a huge amount of work. It's a long process. It's not overnight. I think we've all been made crazy. Yeah, Especially I agree with when you. when they're in active use. Yeah, and I and I agree. It's a long process and it's a lot of work in it order is. to get in order to get better. And you are changed. You are changed for the rest of your life. It's that's how I feel. I feel like I am not the same person I was going into this, and I will never get to be this the person that I was. I'm somebody different now. But I can. But it can be better. I heard somebody say the other day that post-traumatic growth happens. Yeah. Just oh, I like that. Not more than post-traumatic stress. Okay, post-traumatic growth. I like that. Uh, no, knowing the concept of post-traumatic growth actually gives me something to strive for. Okay, I have some notes just really quick for when somebody is in treatment. There were some okay. heads up that I know that you were given that I wish I would have been given. Um, especially the first time somebody goes into treatment, the whole family is kind of like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is the finish line. Finally, it's over. And first yeah. of all, that's not true. Yep. Um, it's the beginning of the process, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and they will call you with complaints. The bed is too hard. The counselor doesn't like me. This person here yep. is conflict. Somebody's bullying me. Yeah. This girl is flirting with me. This boy, I mean, it's a long list, and they may be true, but and it's disease wanting them to get out and use and leave. This, this is, it's the same stuff that they were doing before they were in treatment. It's the same exact stuff. They're trying to pull you back into the chaos. They're trying to pull you back into manipulation. And you're right, I didn't know that. I only knew that because the, the um, treatment facility that my son went to, they did give us the heads up. And what they told us was, if you, if you get a phone call, uh, you can expect him to try and draw you in. We want you to end the conversation. You can only talk about things that are very light, like the weather, uh, you know, just, just basic. Don't even, you don't even want to ask things. They had told us, don't even ask him how he's feeling. Because if you yeah. ask him how, how he's feeling, you've opened the door. Let them right? take care of all of that. Right. And but you know what? As the parents, we're in the disease with them. So right. it's triggering everything in us that we want to fix and take care right. of and comfort. And, oh, my gosh, I've got my child back. I've right. got my daughter back. And right. I just have and to know that this stuff is part of the process. Right. And every phone call, I was looking for, are you better? 
How are you better? Are you better? How are you feeling? You know, yeah. are, are the cravings going away? Are, what, what are they doing? How are they treating you? And how, what are they doing that's making you better? Right? Like, and I, without realizing that, well, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't do that. I didn't do it because I had the heads up from the, from the uh, treatment facility telling me not to do that. And so I didn't. They also told us another, another uh, uh, thing that I didn't realize. They said, do not, please do not start sending him uh, uh, gifts in the mail. That was my next point. They will call you for creature comforts or your part of the disease will want to provide those. I had a dad tell me that he had stopped on a way to visit his son at, when his son was first in um, a rehab center with a carton of cigarettes. And he said, what am I doing? I would have never bought him cigarettes. He said, but here I am stopping at a gas station and buying my 19-year-old son a carton of cigarettes because I'm so relieved that he's here. I'm going to do anything I can to fix it because here I am still fixing. Right. And, and they had told us that the one thing that this particular treatment facility did was they set up a... Um, an account for him that we could put money in and he had to manage that money and buy his own food and cook his own food and buy his own toiletries and all of that stuff. So, and he had a bed, he had a small kitchen, he had a roommate. So he really didn't need anything other than an account to, to draw from. And they really, they really looked over the account. So it wasn't like uh, he was getting cash yeah. in his hands and he could really only use it like when he went to the grocery store or if he went to, I don't know, the, their CVS and they provided him with transportation. So, so they were basically telling me don't, and people will do this, you know, they'll, they'll send pizza or they'll send down uh, a whole bunch of bagels from their local bagel shop and try and feed everybody at the facility. Or they'll, I mean, some people are want to send a car. He needs a car or she needs a car. And they had told us, do not, do not. And in fact, what they told us was, uh, if you want to write him a letter, feel free to write him a letter, but you can only write him one. And then you have to wait for him to write back to you before you write the second one. I think they know that everything comes to a stop and all the family's needs come slamming right into you. Right. And all the family's needs to, the, the family still needs to love and fix and do all of these things. And we're still just as sick. So we rush in with all of that and they know that's all got to be at bay. And um, they were the, they were also the first people to tell me to go and look for a meeting and, and they really were the first people to say, now it's time for you yeah. to start taking care of yourself. They, That's what I was going to say. This is your yeah. time now. Take a breath and assess what in, needs to become well in your life, in your heart, because you've been running this race with them. Right. And I know, you know, some treatment facilities don't do that. They don't really give much attention to the family. I think we were just very blessed to have found one that did. Let me interrupt the show for just a moment. I'd like to remind listeners there's a wealth of information about topics related to substance use disorder on alliesinrecovery.net. Allies in Recovery is a private members-only site that connects families dealing with substance use. It also teaches strategies for both helping your loved one 
and self-care. That's alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the topic. And everybody has a different experience. One family may experience something different and because the process is so different. Right, right. Um, the one point that was made when I was there was that friendships and relationships when they're in treatment are not encouraged. They're not going to make great bonds and, or pick up a nice girlfriend or boyfriend. You know, they're still active in their sickness and their disease. So that's not to be encouraged. And, um, I re you know, my son's really likable. And I remember how many people liked him and encouraged him and talked about what an encouragement he was. And he would tell me, how many friends he was making. And I would say, I really don't want you to be the most liked person there. I want to hear that you're working the hardest. You want it the most. And then I'd heard another dad come in about a year later and it was kind of the same thing. He was saying, you know, my son, people are coming up and pat me on the back and telling me how my son's, you know, teaching them this and encouraging them. And he was, you know, 10 days out of detox. And it's, that became his son's role was kind of the popular guy in treatment. I mean, these things sound crazy to someone that hasn't experienced no. but these are the dynamics that go on. And the counselor said, you don't want him to be, you know, the most behaved, the most popular. You want him to be the most hardworking and serious about their recovery. And you don't know that at first, I think, because we're, as family, we become so sick and we become hope sick. We become so yeah. sick with hope. We want it so bad. So I think all of those things are important to have the heads up, you know, step back, let them work their recovery. Don't rush to fix things. Don't rush to solve problems that they might be telling you they're having. Don't rush to take them their favorite socks necessarily. And don't be excited when every person there praises how well they're doing after 10 days. Those things are all good and it's part of the process, but the family needs to back off and have a heads up that they've got to work through all of this. Right. I also, uh, just to kind of share with you an experience that I had um, while, so the facility that he was in, they also had a weekend, a family weekend. We would come down and we actually had counseling for two days straight in the facility and they would let us take our loved ones on uh, out for either dinner or for lunch that day and one thing i think that is a heads up is um i i remember that i still i thought i was doing better i thought i was you know he had been actually he had been at this facility for two months he was going on his third month when we went for this visit we took him out to dinner. We were, he was sick at the time. He happened to have a really bad cold. We were exhausted from all the traveling. So we all went back to the hotel and decided to take a nap. And I cannot believe, because I was now in his presence, I had an unbelievable nightmare. I, I, it brought everything back. So here I had thought that oh boy, I'm doing really good. I'm really, really emotionally stable and I'm on a good path. But seeing him and being there was a huge reminder. And I, it was almost in a way, a little bit of a setback, if that makes sense. Now, I'm not saying that I shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't go and visit or you shouldn't be a part of that. I'm just saying expect to have setbacks like that, yeah. right? I you know, I didn't expect it and it surprised me. And um, I know this is really odd, but I would do things like when he would, he fell asleep 
um, one of the beds in the hotel and I would stare at his chest and I would make sure that he was breathing. And I couldn't- so Absolutely, after how you had found him, that's some of the post-traumatic stress. Right, right. And it's just, it's just a quick heads up that this, you know, expect that kind of thing once you're back in their presence or once you're uh, around them again. Uh, yeah, and, and understand that things are going to trigger you as well. And you're going right. to, you're going to be so full of this hope that it's over, that it's the worry is over and the fear is over, but it's, that's internal work. Right. You have to do the internal work while they're working to get well, whether they're relapsing or not, you have to do the internal work because we're part of it. Right. I remember one time, uh, I, this was actually at a different facility, but they also had us back for a, um, a quick counseling session before we could go and visit with our loved ones. And I remember in this particular group that we were in, one of the mothers raised her hand to ask a question and she said, uh, how do we know now what kind of a guarantee do we have that our loved ones are cured when they get out of here? And I remember thinking, uh-oh, you know, uh-oh, I, I had known at the time that there's no guarantee. And and what a shock that is to figure out. A woman yeah. said that at one of my meetings as well, that, well, at least we checked him into rehab. This is his first time there this weekend, so at least it's over. At least this whole addiction drug use situation is over. And I just remember the look on everyone's face. It wasn't it wasn't like to laugh at her. It was yeah. like, you're this, the reality of this will slam into you like a truck. Yeah. It's so painful when you realize it, but the quicker you realize it, the, the quicker better. you start doing the, the work and getting exactly. well. Exactly. I totally agree. Um, my next category was, I just have two left relapse is part of recovery, which is part of that same point. It's a process it's not cured because they checked into detox, especially if they checked in begrudgingly. And be forewarned, and be forewarned that um, a lot of the time when they relapse, I found myself going back to obsessive thoughts, crushing feelings. Uh, I, I was better at it each time that it happened because my son did relapse uh, quite a few times. And I was better at it, but I remember that first time. In fact, I can, I can tell you, when he came out of the first facility and he went into sober living, it was, it was down in Florida, and I, was, uh, I flew in to see him get his six-month chip. And he came and picked me up, and, this, and I looked at his arms, and I knew it was his first time using IV drugs, oh, yeah. right? And and totally, totally felt like I, almost like it was worse than the first time, this, this, because now it was, it was absolutely, he was going to relapse. If that makes, I, I don't know how to. You know what, that's, I have always said, I took the relapse harder than finding out initially. Yeah. And, and, and that's another point you make that him being in another state, people always think, I just got to get him away. But wherever you go, there you are. You take your misery with you. You take yep who you are with you, they can go across the country, they can still find it. Oh, and yeah. if they're not ready or they have a setback, relapse is part of it. But one thing I've heard, and relapse hits you right in the hope. Everything hits it you does. right in that hope. Yeah. One thing I've learned about relapse, you know, if they make it through, which that is the scariest part of it, is that new relapse leads to new growth. 
Everybody has new realizations. I mean, I did. I realized new things. I realized less control that I had and more things I needed to do to contribute. And he realized where things had gone wrong and where he was weak. I I agree. I agree. Relapse definitely uh, gives new meaning to everything. And really, it it gives you a a new way to grow. It does, and what to expect, and it takes the shock out of it. Yeah. Um, when your loved one is out of treatment, walking on eggshells to prevent relapse doesn't prevent relapse. No, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. It absolutely doesn't, and I've done that as well because I've done. I, I have done all sorts of, of things. I've you know I let him back in the house uh, right after relapse, and. Uh, and I was doing crazy things when he was in the house. I can remember, you know, I have a bathroom at the top of the stairs. And I would, I would literally walk up halfway up the stairs. And I would look underneath the door to see where his feet were when he was in the bathroom to make sure that he was okay. I, I know, crazy, right? Crazy, crazy things. Uh, I mean, that's but you, That's the frame of mind it puts you into because your brain gets hijacked just like theirs. Right. And it didn't, it didn't do anything. All it did was it gave me a sense of overwhelming worry and totally did absolutely nothing but make me sick. You know, I hate to compare it to this, um, but it's almost like I have friends who have tried to chase down a husband or wife to keep them from cheating, especially if they've cheated before and following them, checking their phone, showing up wherever they're at to make sure who they're talking to or not talking to isn't going to keep somebody from cheating. You know, and you know, two totally different dynamics here, but you chasing somebody away from relapsing and making sure they're getting to meetings and who they're around is no different than keeping them from anything else. If somebody wants to do something, they're going to do it. You're just going to make everybody miserable doing that. Right. I I can tell you this though. There are some things that I learned uh, when he came back and would relapse after that. Right. So every time, every time he came back and then relapsed and left and went to treatment, I learned the different things that he was doing that I needed to set up boundaries to keep myself protected. So you know, I'm just trying to think of things. At one point, he came back and uh, before he came back, so he relapsed, he went to treatment, he got sober, he's going to come home. And he was begging to come home. And I said, okay, you can come home. But I, uh, the, I have a couple of boundaries that you're going to have to live by. You have to agree to live by these boundaries. And if you can't, then you can't come home. One of them was, uh, I'm just going by a couple of things that I did. Uh, One of them was he could not be behind a locked door. (laughs) No, no locked doors because I was going crazy. Let me ask you this though. Did those rules work? Because usually they don't follow rules and everybody's just trying to run crazy. Well, actually that one did. Um, But what would happen is, so he would relapse, right? Which he did. He relapsed again. And, but it was the it was the things that led him to relapse that I started to set boundaries according to that. So him not being behind a locked door had more to do with keeping myself safe because I was going insane because I couldn't I couldn't get to him if I needed to kind of thing versus um, versus that boundary is going to keep him from relapsing. I don't think it, I knew it wasn't going to keep him yeah. from relapsing. 
right? That's, that was not the goal of that boundary. The goal of that boundary was for me, not for him. And that's the thing that's most important is to check your motives when you're setting boundaries. Right. Am I making this list of rules to keep myself feeling safe about his safety? Or I'm ke am I keeping a list of rules because it's healthy and wise for all of us and mostly for me first? Because right. if I'm doing what's best for me and it's, you know, I'm going to be healthy, healthy and fair and unselfish, if I know I'm truly doing what's best for me, it ends up being what's best for everyone. Right. And, and I can tell you right now that none of the boundaries, the... I can tell you, he was able to keep all of the boundaries that I had set, except for one. And the one boundary that I had set was you cannot use when you're living at the house. If you're living at the house and you use, you have to leave. And my boundary was if, you, um, if you're using, you have to leave. I'll do whatever I can to help you get to treatment. I'll bring you to a shelter if you want to go to a shelter, you know, I'll, I'll give you some numbers for you to call and you can try and get yourself into treatment. I'll do what I can to help you with that. But if you want to leave and go and stay at a friend's house or set, then you're on your own. You go figure that out. You know, you can go figure all of that stuff out. I'll bring you to a shelter, but that's about it but you cannot be using. And I can tell you that was the one boundary, of course, that he wasn't able to keep. And so anytime he stepped over that boundary, he left. And that has to be the thing. People will say, well, I can't just kick my son or daughter out. You're not kicking them out. I'm They're not. Thing to break the rules and have to go. So that, that, that removes the guilt from it because you're right. not kicking them out. They're unable to adhere to a safe, healthy environment for everybody. Right. And the other thing was, was I wasn't, I, I don't feel like I was kicking him out. I wasn't kicking him out. He was doing that to himself, yeah. right? He was the one who was using, not me. And I wasn't telling him to use. I was just setting down a boundary and he has to live by that boundary in, in whatever method he needs, right? In, or in whatever method he chooses to use to stay within that boundary is fine by me and I will support but if he can't stay within that boundary, he can't stay with me. I'll give him other options, yeah. right? I, I'll give him other options. I'll, I'll help him get into a shelter. I'll help him get into a treatment facility. You know, I'll help him get into a sober house. I'll do all of those things. I'll help guide him into, into treatment or into sobriety. Uh, I will not support him using, period. I won't do it. Yeah, and that's, that choice is on him. And right. then I come to the final heads up is that it's a process. Um, nothing changes well, or gets better overnight. There are a couple heads up that I'd like to talk about. Yes. And that is that when someone is in recovery, it's a long haul to deal with a whole bunch of other host of issues that they're going to have to deal with for years to come like the personality effects and some of the habitual patterns that you sense and stuff those things don't just go away there's no utopia you know right. my son and i still would have arguments that would go along the same vein of what they were like when he was in use because those things had to kind of untangle right so so let's let's just take things like um medically assisted treatment let's let's talk about let's say someone goes on suboxone and they're going to be on Suboxone for uh, the next three or four years. They still need a lot of support. 
they still need it's it's not like they go on suboxone and they never have a craving and it's like oh wow i'm all cured and you know i'm gonna go the next year and it's still a lot of work it's a lot of work on their part and it's a lot of work on your part if you plan on supporting them you can you know i you know i didn't realize how much of the up and down happens once they are in recovery and they are in recovery long term it still is a lot of work for me it still is a lot of work for my son right we're still having to go to um i mean we're 19 months out of it and we're still seeing doctors and uh and working on ourselves so it really is like you said it's a process it's a long-term process in fact i think it's a forever process well it's like working on your health to me it's like um if you take weight off it's not often you're done when you get to a certain spot on the scale you have to work to maintain it it's lifelong right. make healthy choices and you have setbacks just the same but you have to do the work and you have to stay mindful and aware that you want to do the work and have to do being healthy is work but it's work for your for everyone's benefit it's not like it's not just you know a drag it's actually we all want a better life and recovery is a better life for everybody it's work it's right for your betterment but also you know there's um in in people might want to do research on this. There's actually particular times in recovery that um, from what I've read that people are more likely to relapse, right? And if you can kind of uh, get them the support and the help that they need during those times, and I don't mean, uh, I don't necessarily mean us. I mean, maybe if they have a sober coach or maybe if they have uh, a, a person at a meeting or a sponsor or whatever it is, you know, if they can have that support, I've heard like uh, six months, nine months, a year are like these critical times. And maybe if you can do a little bit of research and kind of understand them, you can help be supportive during those particular times. Well, that's why having a sponsor or mentors is really important. I'd heard somebody say that when you're hanging out with a bunch of people that are at your same level of development with your recovery, it's almost like you, you have a group of friends that say, let's all go rappelling and mountain climbing. And then you get there and the person that's leading you is on the same level with all of you that nobody's done it before. There's been no training and you've just Googled how to do it. You need somebody that's a little bit further along in the process with some momentum, with some wisdom that recognizes things that is accountable because people have setbacks. And if you're only around people at your level or you're not around anybody that's struggling to stay sober, and they don't have any comprehension of what your life is like now, you're going to be vulnerable to relapse. You have to set, you have to have a plan, like you said in the beginning, that you have to even have a plan for that. You know, and I think there's actually a program online somewhere too, and I'm pretty sure it's called like RAP, and it's a, it's a program where you do this self-reflection. It's for the person that suffers with SUD. And, and I guess it's also for family members, uh, but what it is is it's a chance to identify within yourself you reflect on yourself and you identify uh triggers and uh things that are um things to be looking out for and you kind of hand out a sheet 
to your loved ones or people that are supporting you to tell them what to do when you start behaving in a particular way to kind of help support you, you know? My son had done that before. He'd written us notes and said, when you see this, that, or the other, or to yeah. check this tone, know that I'm either close to relapsing if I haven't already. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that's helpful, yeah. And yeah. I can always tell when he's rigorously honest and open and humble, I know that he's really working his program. Yeah. He, the more he becomes hidden and blaming and entitled and deceptive, the more I know he's headed toward relapse, if not already there. Right. Right. Um, I don't know, but it being a process, I think the biggest things that I've had to learn how to do is be kind to myself, be gentle with myself and be supportive of my needs, no matter what's going on, because I'm at the core of, of this I, healthy life. I agree. I agree. The same with me. I've had to take care of myself and, and I've, it, it's a process, but I've kind of come to terms with no matter what happens, no matter what happens, I'm going to be, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And I'm going to work to be. Yeah, I think like we said before, post-traumatic growth is possible. It can happen right alongside post-traumatic stress once you get well. And then one point I want to um, close with, if you don't have anything else, is to remember, um, I love the quote by Bill Valentine, we are all walking the same road differently. It's a process. What works for me might not work for you. What works for you might not work for me. But we can help each other and support and encourage each other with compassion. And we can further each other along to move the families forward. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Dominique and Allies in Recovery for sponsoring us. Thank you, Lori. And until next time. Okay, I'll see you next time, Annie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online, or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, Net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.